1: WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's not often that one gets to combine the things that they love into a flourishing career, but that's just what Elisa Bertrand is doing. By pairing her talent for sewing and her love of thrifting, the South Fulton mom created Jabella Fleur and has since gained the attention of the fashion elite. But first, throughout his life as a dancer and choreographer, Alvin Ailey created an art form by searching for truth through movement. His extraordinary life is the subject of a recent documentary which premiered at Sundance and is now showing in Atlanta at the landmark Midtown Art Cinema. The film's director, Jamila Wignot, recently spoke with City Lights host Lois Reitzis over Zoom and they were joined by Robert Battle, the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Wignott started their conversation by explaining how the film came about.
2: It came about in 2017 when Insignia Films, the producing partner on the film, the principals of that company, Stephen Ives and Amanda Pollack, approached me. And, you know, we knew each other from our various work on PBS strands and they said, you know, we're looking for a director to helm a project about Alvin Ailey. And, you know, what do you think about that? (laughs) And uh, I, you know, my jaw dropped because I have been a fan of the company since I first saw them perform in college. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, it felt like this film was finding me. And I said, yes, right from jump. and, And we set off to get the film made.
3: The movie alternates in time very well. Would you explain how the film juxtaposes the past with the present?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when we approached uh, Robert Battle and the company with the idea of making a biography, we knew from the beginning that we always wanted the film to include a contemporary piece, uh, some way of showing the company today, because we felt like... There, no sort of portrait of Mr. Ailey and his work and his vision would be complete without um, seeing that the company indeed lived on um, beyond his passing. And so uh, Robert said, you know, it's so serendipitous that you're coming to us now because we've just commissioned a new work by street choreographer, Rennie Harris, an hour long ballet that would, you know, depict Mr. Ailey's life and times.
0: ha, ha. 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 So- we're gonna start with making up vocabulary. If I can get the movement out, I can create the story.
2: And yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So we set off um, filming the rehearsal process uh, for that ballet, and it was really a process of thinking about where the visual language of Rennie Harris's dance work was. Um, exploring or showcasing kind of a thematic connection to to what we were discovering in our process of sifting through the archive um, of Mr. Ailey's life and, and his own dances as well. So it was really something that really got worked out in the edit room where we wanted to think about what were the moments that it made sense to kind of come in full on on this rehearsal process where Rennie is really on a journey to, you know, understand Mr. Ailey. And in our film, we are really kind of with Mr. Ailey himself as he's on a journey to understand himself as he's on a journey that's drawing him closer to dance uh, and then building a company and going from there.
3: Yeah. A very powerful statement in the film comes when Alvin Ailey says, I see the dancer as a physical historian information is stored in their bodies. Robert, you've spoken with me before about the blood memory in this company. How does memory anchor this documentary?
0: I think that artistically, even things that we don't think we remember, we do. It lives with us. It resides somewhere in our being. It's just that Alvin Ailey, he had the ability to see what is there as opposed to what isn't there. In a way, as he painted his canvas with his dances, I think he was telling his story, but telling the story of a people that it's once personal, but also it reflects humanity in such a beautiful way. And in a way, when I think about revelations, um, I think about the power of the spiritual and how that helps us to remember things we may think that we've never experienced. When I hear Wade in the Water, I think of my mother, my grandmother, my great, great grand, my, you know, through infinity. And there's something about that memory that is so electric in Alvin Ailey's creativity throughout this film. And also, I think the notion that both Jamila and Rennie Harris were discovering Alvin through this process. And that's what I feel by the end of it and throughout it is discovering the person, right. And not the myth or not the person on a pedestal and learning how that drove his creativity and why it's so palpable still to this day.
3: Indeed. In fact, What most of us know about Alvin Ailey is through his work and the company. Jamila, how did you decide which parts of his life story to include?
2: We were really guided by these audio recordings that um, were made in the last year of Mr. Ailey's life. He was in the process of working on an autobiography, and so he was kind of engaged in this exercise of memory himself, thinking about what parts of his life story um, did he think were most salient, most necessary for people to have uh, in order to understand him and and what was shaping him. And so in terms of the more intimate details of his life that he shared, those were culled from, from those those recordings. And I think there was a quality to those recordings because it wasn't him as Mr. Alvin Ailey, the artistic director of the company, you know, sort of on a press tour or, you know, trying to sort of talk very kind of broadly about his vision. He, it just had a different kind of quieter, sort of more relaxed um, tone to it. Uh, And that really informed, I think, both our aesthetic approach in in the film and just really sort of digging deep into those, to those memories. So, you know, he shares his sexual awakening, he shares his, a story of, you know, personal heartbreak, he shares his struggles with mental health. And I think all of that really guided us in thinking about, you know, parts of his story to share. And then also, you know, in talking to his collaborators and colleagues, kind of things we wanted to help them Help us understand you know about about working with the man
3: it was interesting to discover that the dancers, in all their reverence for him, wanted him to remain on a pedestal that being too close would have shown how human he was, but he didn't let people become close, did he.
2: Yeah, it seems that it was very important for him to be able to kind of retain some part of himself or maintain some part of himself that would always be separate from even his closest collaborators. And that's a kind of intriguing thing, because I think when you watch the dance works and when you listen to those you know, who worked closely with him talk about him, there's such a sense of real kind of generosity, this kind of expansive embrace, this caring for others He's that kind of person who seemed sort of abundantly capable of shining a spotlight on um, people around him, but maybe not as capable of allowing that spotlight to shine as brightly on on him in a way. And in some ways, I think it's probably self-protective to some degree. Um, I think when you are asked to give that much of yourself, um, it makes sense that you would want some kind of quiet space separate unto yourself where that's not necessary. So it's it's part of the duality that I think is intriguing, you know, about him and that remains a kind of a bit of an enigma, you know, to this day.
3: Robert, you were talking about revelations. And there's an essential moment in the film when he explains the joy of songs he heard exploding in church and how those will always be with me. Jamila, you address the complexities of Ailey's masterpiece, Revelations, and raise the question, did success come too early? I mean, you even have Harry Belafonte asking... Alvin Ailey, did he know when he created Revelations that it would last forever? Would you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that bit of interview is really interesting just because you see Mr. Ailey in that moment. You know, he's saying he's he actually sees Revelations performed in Atlanta and it still works and he kind of <laughs> rolls his eyes. Um, and, you know, I think... I think he's very aware of why it still works. I think he's excited that he, you know, made a dance work that is um, that kind of eternal. I'd love to hear more from Robert on this as well as a dance maker himself, because what I do think too is that that demand that that be the dance work that always you know, gets performed, I think is challenging for an artist. As a choreographer, you're interested in exploring new and different sides of yourself and of humanity. And so I can appreciate how the sort of desire to see this one work over and over and over again might make you feel choreographically stuck. I don't know. I mean it's it's a it's kind of an amazing burden to have, right? (laughs) Like you have a masterpiece that people cannot get over. And at the same time, you know, maybe you want to make a work that that moves beyond that.
3: But he did create a whole body of work beyond it. Robert, what are your thoughts on the popularity of revelations?
0: Revelations, it's you know, one of the wonders of the world in a way, that I don't think you'll find many creatives who have that problem. (laughs) Um, As wonderful as their work may be, as as wonderful as there are many choreographers with brilliant and wonderful work, Revelations is (laughs) sort of space in and of itself. I do believe he struggled with, with that in terms of perhaps wanting to end the program with something different or, you know, there's a wonderful story in the, that Chaya, Masazumi Chaya, talked to me about when when Alvin Ailey was in the hospital and wanted revelations taken out from this and that and the other. And and Chaya just kind of showed him in in real life, these are the ticket sales without revelation. These are the ones with, you see? (laughs) So so he was a realist in that way. But I think there is that thing that followed him. But still, uh, he did amazing works and masterpieces beyond revelations but revelations was in some ways that gateway into a creative space that some of us will never find ourselves in
3: indeed and in fact in the film it's described as a reenactment of life itself joy anger and sorrow thinking about what mr ailey said again of the role of the dancer as historian and that this history is in the body. With Revelations, I thought about Isabel Wilkerson's masterpiece, The Warmth of Other Suns, and the two seem comparable to me. Has anyone ever asked you about that?
2: No, that connection hasn't been directly, John, until now, but I I think it's interesting insofar as thinking about kind of generational memory and the kind of epicness of what she traces um, in that work, which I think is, is similar to what you experience with Revelations. There's just a kind of epic telling of a people's history that I think, you know, it feels as if it is the full kind of 500-year history of the African-American experience in this country.
4: The joy of these
0: people, of my aunts and uncles exploding in church, is something that was always with me. I remember there was this procession of people in white. They sang waiting in the water.
2: because some of the themes that it traces continue to be relevant today. I mean, both in terms of some of the deep sorrow uh, and despair that's captured in that piece that unfortunately continues to be relevant, you know, given the racial history of this country. Uh, At the same time, I think it really gets at the essence of what defines Black life, which is not that despair and that sorrow. It It is this kind of beauty, this... Um, sense of community, this sense of joy, this music, a rich and very deep tradition that defines and will continue to find Black life in this country. So I think that because it is so sort of true at getting at a kind of essence, that's the other reason that audiences clamor to see it every season. There's just some kind of incredible truth that's specific, deeply specific to the Black experience, but I think also that is specific to human human beings and what it is that allows us to continue to survive. So I think all of that is, is built into the 30 minutes.
1: Film director Jamila Wignot and artistic director Robert Battle speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis about the new documentary Ailey. We'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for joining us. Let's return now to our conversation with Robert Battle, the Artistic Director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and Film Director Jamila Wignot. They've been speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes about the new documentary Ailey, which starts tonight at the Landmark Midtown Art Cinema. Here, Wignot talks about some of the commentators that appear in the film.
2: We were really fortunate, I think, to um, be able to get interviews. I mean, incredibly privileged to be able to get interviews with all the folks that we did. And I think, you know, they appear in a specific kind of order because that order reflects the sort of, as I say, journey that Mr. Ailey himself took Um you know, his artistic journey, which was something that we were very much interested in. We we thought of this very much as a story of becoming and and being with him. So, you know, early in the film, you only hear from Mr. Ailey until we're with him in high school where he's beginning to discover dance and then enters, you know, then enters Carmen de Lavalade, who there is there as a witness to his hesitancy around embracing this incredible dance that he was capable of. Even then she sees him in a, in a gymnastics class and she can see in his movement and his, in his body that, you know, this is something he should be pursuing. And of course he's already interested in it. And then we meet Don Martin, who's, you know, one of the earliest members of the Ailey company, but who also uh, attended high school with Mr. Ailey and journeyed with him to Lester Horton's dance theater, where they, you know, kind of open, walk through these doors and enter kind of, you know, exciting new world. So it's sort of as Mr. Ailey is um, in the film telling as he's kind of gathering his kindred spirits really who are going to be dancers and artists themselves. And sort of as he, in a way, it's kind of the gathering of the individuals who will ultimately be a kind of family for him. Uh, So everybody from obviously Carmen de to George Faison to Miss Judith Jameson, his muse, uh, Sylvia Waters, Linda Kent, Hope Clark, uh, Bill Hammond, uh Bill Jones. I mean, uh, you know, a kind of breadth of individuals who really are there, as I say, as also kind of firsthand witnesses to
3: Mr. Ailey's journey. Robert, would you talk about identity as a strong message? In the film, we learn, I am is a theme that runs through all the dances. Do you agree?
0: Yes, I think that that's the power of Alvin Ailey's work. You know, when I think of "I Am," one of the first things that come to mind is the Poor Man's March. I think that was one of the last things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was involved in. If I'm, I may be wrong on my history, but I believe so. And you know, <laughs> that famous photo of someone holding up a protest sign that says, I am a man. I think of two, you know, my mother who recited poetry, uh, and one of the poems was by Mari Evans, and it's called I am a Black woman. There is something about reclaiming and exclaiming one's identity when you're told that you're less than a man, less than human. Um, and I believe that's what um, she was getting at in the film. It to me struck that particular note of pride, of blood memories, of knowing fully who you are as human being and being able to express that in all ways is a revolutionary act. And one that I remember learning very much as a child growing up in Liberty City You know, I mean, when you you learn the words, Black is beautiful, you know, all of that to me is, is a reflection of what that film was all about and what his life was all about. You know, even Black Lives Matter. Alvin Ailey was a living embodiment of that before, you know, it was put together that way. And so all of that to me is about reclaiming and exclaiming one's identity, and the freedom in that, and the power in that.
3: Jamila, you do not shy away from the fact that Alvin Ailey died a horrible death from AIDS. He had asked Judith Jamison to take over, and I found it very emotional when Bill T. Jones described the guilty disease. And it's mentioned what's done in the dark will come to the light. Did Alvin Ailey have no gay community?
2: You know, that's an interesting moment of a kind of generational gap, I think, between Billy Jones and between Mr. Ailey. I think Mr. Ailey had other gay people that were around him. Obviously, there were people in the company and there were people, um, you know, in his private life. I think in that moment, Biltie Jones is really articulating the idea that maybe he doesn't have a political community around him that can advocate for him in that way. And I think it makes sense that Biltie Jones would see it that way, understanding that Biltie Jones is, of course, of a much younger generation um, that will be putting themselves more on the front lines of countering the incredible stigma, um, and I would say violence against the gay community in that moment in which no one is supporting them as they are being besieged by this, you know, terrible disease. You know, it's funny when I first sat down with Bill T. Jones, he asked me, oh, you know, when was Mr. Ailey born? I said, he was born in 1931. He said, oh my gosh, he's, a, he's the same age as my father. And I think that tells you quite a bit <laughs> about the different ways that they would, you know, that they would understand their sexualities, the different ways that they would internalize, you know, what the world's expectation of them was. And in the end, you know, what I think is in that moment, you know, it's so easy for us, from our current vantage point, to look back and judge that decision. And I think you see that Bill T. Jones is, in fact, not judging him for that. I think that it was a terrible kind of fork to find yourself at. There is the individual decision Mr. Ailey could have made, perhaps, to disclose his status. But you know, I think given that he's seen you know that he's a person who is so invested in this incredible institution that he built and the question of whether or not would the people continue to support and love it in the ways that they did if he did disclose and i think being you know forced to consider those choices that's just a terrible a terrible position to be in and an important reminder you know of where we were in that moment And also, you know, where we are now, where I think there is still uh, an incredible amount of stigma and shame around this disease. So for us, the the important part was to not edit it out of the film, um, to be truthful about it, but to also be able to see through somebody like Bill Jones, a kind of understanding of what the tensions might have been for Mr. Ailey in that moment.
3: I don't think we can conclude without talking about The impact of Alvin Ailey's mother upon his life. What a gorgeous human being she was. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Again, I mean, I think she's clearly a mother who was extraordinarily dedicated to her to her son and to providing him. you know, a certain kind of life that she wouldn't have access to. I think when Mr., when Mazazumi Chaya says, you know, she's somebody who sacrificed for him. I think that's something he was very aware of. I also personally find, you know, in that moment where we found that rare interview of her with Alvin Avali talking about the company um, and she's asked if she's, you know, proud of him and she says, oh, and, and seeing the dance works and she says, you know, oh, it's the biggest thrill of my life. And then there's this turn where she's like, and that's why he's got to keep on keeping on. I think you see in this one sort of brief moment, the kind of mother she is. She's extremely proud of her son, but she is also pushing him, right? Like it's from that moment on, he still has more work to do and he has to keep, you know, keep going. She's extraordinary and obviously somebody of extraordinary significance to Mr. Ailey, given Cry and his uh, creating a dance work for her. Um, and then, you know, basically spending out the last of his days with her as well.
3: Robert, what impact has this film had upon the company?
0: Oh, I think it has been tremendous for the company, especially in these very difficult times. Talk about identity. I mean, so much of what we do, our identity is wrapped up in traveling, (laughs) you know, the dancers to be at the fabulous Fox. These are things we can depend on. That is a part of our identity, our creativity, our engagement with audiences. So this, in some ways, you know, mixed blessings offered us a moment to stop and reflect on a lot of things, but certainly on, you know, sort of, who are we? Where do we come from? And we've been talking a lot about invoking Mr. Ailey, bringing him into the room, hearing his voice. These are themes that have come up, especially since um, the 60th anniversary, in the way that Rennie Harris does in his work, where you hear his voice. And that had been a conversation, um, organizational conversation. And so this comes at a perfect time when we as an organization can reflect on who Alvin Ailey was, that we can appreciate, you know, that we're sort of living in his wake, that we come into this wonderful Alvin Ailey Dance Center in New York City, one of the largest buildings dedicated to dance. I mean, come on and so understanding that it took a lot of sacrifice mr ailey for us to be able to go on stages all over the world and tell our story and i think that it is important for the entire organization to be reminded of that to be reminded of the shoulders on which we stand to not take for granted you know the notion that yes Now you see more uh, that people can sort of speak out and say truly who they are, right? You have gay pride, you have lots of themes, although some of the stigma and discrimination still exist. But we have to think about those people who couldn't say that at that time, but who said it in their work, or who said it in other ways, right? So that we are able to say it just a little bit louder. And so I think it just reminded us all in the way that this time has reminded us all not to take for granted when we sit in a theater all together and witness the beauty of the Albany American Dance Theater and revelations and what a privilege it is. And so I think for the organization who has had to be really creative and how we've had to continue to connect with our audiences through the digital world It asked the whole entire organization to bring all of their creativity to bear. And so then when you see the film that is so brilliant, it reminds us that if he could do it, so can we.
1: Robert Battle, the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and director Jamila Wignott talking about her new film, Ailey, which explores the life of dancer and choreographer Alvin Ailey. The recent documentary premieres tonight at the Landmark Midtown Art Cinema, and more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, we'll hear from a South Fulton mom whose recycled kids' clothing line is getting attention from the high fashion world. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you're a DIY clothing designer, having a high fashion magazine reach out to you unexpectedly is a really big deal. And amazingly, that's just what happened to Atlanta's Elisa Bertrand and her brand, Jabella Fleur. Last summer, she had been posting pictures of her kids wearing her upcycled clothing creations and Vogue magazine came knocking. Bertrand joins us now via Zoom. Alisa, welcome to City Lights.
4: Thank you so much. I'm excited.
1: (laughs) And we're excited to have you here. So I know you've been posting on Instagram for quite a while now, but even before then, your love of sewing goes back many years, right?
4: I've been sewing actually for a little over 20 years, and it was just something that kind of started off as like, I had received these little cross-stitch kits from an aunt, and I always hated it. And it just kind of, at a certain point, I don't know, it was this breaking point where I was in school and it was either for a home at cooking or sewing. And I was like, I am not cooking. So (laughs) it just kind of took it from there to where I was like, well, let's do sewing. And ever since.
1: (laughs) Good for you. So tell me uh, the little cross stitch gifts that you were given. Why were they an affront? What were you hoping for instead?
4: My aunt, she was a seamstress. She had a little shop. So it was like, I don't know if she was trying to get me into it, mm-hmm. but I would get these kits and you know, my brothers and stuff would get blockbuster cards, you know, when blockbuster was around sure. or just, you know, movie tickets and things. And I'm like a cross stitch kit, really? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> and I never showed any interest at that point of wanting to do stuff like that. So it was just kind of awkward.
1: Of course you would want the movie card at that age. That just makes sense. Yeah, So you ended up taking a home ec sewing class and did it stick with you after high school? It did off and
4: on, like I would still dabble in between and just always want to be like within fabrics and going to the fabric stores and just kind of always in and out of it. And then I had children. So it was like, oh, I'll make a blanket or I'll attempt to try and do something whenever I could until you know kind of recently
1: and you mentioned buying fabrics at some point you came to the realization that fabric is really expensive it was it it almost came to a
4: point where it was just like this is not even feasible by the time I buy however much yardage times the amount times the child then the pattern and the time it was just like what this is this is not working out so it was just kind of that point too where I go into these fabric stores and I never really found stuff that was my true style or my aesthetic or what I loved. And I was always thrifting and I'm like, wait a minute, here we have all these clothes, you know, $2, $3 sheets, materials. And I'm like, why don't I just start using this? It just kind of clicked, which is so funny because it was like, it took me that long (laughs) for something to click that I've always been doing.
1: What are some of your favorite thrift stores in Atlanta?
4: I dabble in between Park Avenue Thrift, Value Village, and Southern Thrift.
1: And yeah, the things there are super cheap. And when you talk about getting fabrics from sheets or curtains, you're ending up with a lot of yardage.
4: It's a lot. I mean, and I try to look for things like skirts. Obviously, anything that's bigger than what my children are will obviously work like blouses and things. But yes, shirts, skirts, sheets. And a lot of times these thrift stores have fabric that, you know, just people have gotten rid of and it's an easy way to, you know, reuse what's already there.
1: Right. For those who are unfamiliar with your work, will you share a little bit about what your aesthetic is like and what you go for as a designer?
4: Anything that draws... Any reminiscence to the past, any decade I love. It's all vintage nostalgia it, through the patterns, the colors, the palette, the storytelling with what I'm trying to evoke with what it is that I create. And just kind of setting that tone and story with a mood of clothing that was, you know, reminiscent. And honestly, it's all coming back. So a lot mm-hmm. of these brands are turning around the same style from the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. And even back to the 70s, a lot of stuff is coming back. So my aesthetic and design pulls a lot from that as well.
1: So you're definitely pulling from vintage history, but the way that you're putting stuff together is incredibly unique. You're not afraid of patterns or color.
4: That is probably an understatement. <laughs> I am absolutely in love with patterns and colors and textures and the silhouette once it's all put together. And if anything people would gather is I absolutely love floral prints. Mm. There's no going around it. So I just love that layered look of putting something together to where you're taking this dress or whatever piece of garment, and you're just kind of enhancing it to, you know, who you are and telling your story through that.
1: And for you, since you originally started making your clothes for your own children, they're still a big part of your process, right?
4: At this point, it's more so I know them and I know Hmm. who they are. I'll make a dress for one and know the other one can't stand them or I'll make pants (laughs) for another. And one wants a skirt at this point. I know what they like, I'll ask them, you know, Hey, would you wear this print? Or do you like this one? And they'll be like, Oh, I love that one. Or maybe this one instead, if it's something really off, but for the most part, I do all of that.
1: Right on. Well, let's explain a little more about how you took off. So you were styling your clothes for your kids, you were posting very beautiful pictures on Instagram, quite artistic. And at that point, um, is it Accurate to say that Vogue magazine went actively searching for young creatives?
4: It just so happened that they were doing a piece on just, you know, new fashion from the South. And I apparently popped up and they found me, which was an amazing opportunity for me to be able to have.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and I'm speaking with fashion designer Elisa Bertrand. Elisa, will you share the story behind the name Jabella Fleur?
4: So the brand is Jabella Fleur, which is J-A-B-E-L-L-A. The J-A in the beginning is for my two twin, their twins, Jada and Jayla. The AB in the center is my name, Alisa Bertrand. And the Ella at the end is for my youngest daughter, who's Ella. And then Fleur, which is Flower, because as I mentioned, I'm absolutely in love with them. (laughs) So it just kind of meshed all together, Jabella Fleur.
1: Well, you came up with a beautifully original name. How did your daughters feel when they first became Unexpected Models?
4: You know, I think initially it was like, they didn't really realize it's like, oh, we're just getting dressed. And then it kind of was like, well, hey, I just dressed you. Let's take a cool picture. So we started taking some pictures and they were just like, oh, this is cool. And it almost came to a point there. were like, well, are we going to do one tomorrow? Oh. And I was like, well, I can't sew that fast. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, okay, so you guys like it. And it's really stuck with them because there's points where I haven't sewn in a bit just because of everything that's going on in life right now and just the time and ability. And they're like, Hey mom, are we going to go take pictures today? And it's like, Oh,
1: (laughs) you got little motivators.
4: Yeah, for sure. It's not forced. I mean, they love it just as much or probably even on days more than I do.
1: That's fantastic. People have commented on your Instagram, why aren't your kids smiling more? They need to smile. And I loved your response to that. Would you mind sharing your thought behind that with people?
4: Yeah, you know, it was just, I started getting comments on like, why aren't they smiling? Or they look miserable. But I always encourage them to, you don't have to smile. We don't all walk around with smiles all day. And I can be the happiest go lucky person, but that doesn't mean that I have to show you to prove it to you, you know, you prove it to yourself. And it was just kind of taking that spin of like, okay, you're forcing them to do this or, and let's be honest, if anybody has children, you can't really force much. And I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, and especially when you're taking pictures, if a kid or a child does not want to be in an image, they will surely show you. You know, so it's like, I encourage them to express how they feel, however they want. If you don't want to smile, don't smile. If you want to smile, smile. You know, a lot of that was coming from a lot of women and white women, honestly, who were like, why don't you make them smile or why aren't they smiling? And to me, social media is like, if you are not resonating with what you see, why are you following Like you can remove yourself if I don't believe in something or I don't feel like what you're doing aligns to what I'm doing or what I want to share, teach and know, I'm not going to follow you and I won't waste my time commenting
1: either. Why is the assumption that you're doing it wrong and not just that I might not be into it?
4: Yeah. You know, another point to that is why do I have to smile to make you feel good? You know, and that's kind of what I was pushing as well. Why do I have to prove something to you? I'm not going to force them to smile. And if they don't want to, you don't have to.
1: Well, I'm very impressed with your ability to be a champion for your kids, just being who they are. However, who they are is really cool. And they are just they're stunning. They have so much poise and just such an intense gaze. Do any of them have a desire to continue modeling later in life?
4: You know, it's funny because, you know, they change every moment. At this point, it's honestly not really an ambition. It's just kind of fun. Like it's a natural thing for them, but they haven't mentioned it as being something that they'd want to do long term, which also goes to the fact, you know, from the previous question is, I'm really trying to show them who I never was able to be. I'm trying to show them and teach them, you know, you can have the confidence. You can walk somewhere. You can sit in a room. You can hold your shoulders up, but not have to impress the next person over or make them feel some sort of way because of your presence. Like you are who you are and you're strong that way. You're confident that way. Carry yourself that way. And it's a constant reminder to them every day. So when they are out there in the world on their own, I at least know, okay, if my child is in school, I know that nobody's going to be able to walk over them. Or, you know, if they want to say something, they're going to have the ability to say it and not feel bad for what they believe in or things of that sort. So it kind of like all encompasses everything that they do so that when you do see them, in a picture and you see their shoulders high and you see their head up, that doesn't mean they have to smile for you. They're smiling for themselves, whatever way they want to show that.
1: Very well said. So mm-hmm. when I look at your clothes, if I'm if I'm getting past the beauty of your kids and I'm just looking at the clothes, oh, thank you. <laughs> they really evoke joy. They are they are joyful garments. Can you speak a little to that?
4: They are. They're not going to be over-sexualized clothing. They are not skin tight. They are still fun. You can run around in them. You can be outside. You can go wherever you want to go and still have that fun look to those clothing. But still at least like this look of like you took time to get ready. And as I say, like the art of dress is almost kind of lost now, especially with children. It brings back the fun, whimsical nostalgia of like, oh, wow, children's clothes in the past used to be like these amazing pieces. Where are they? Like, what happened to them?
1: <laughs> right, I think basically just wash and wear and a very disposable. Yeah,
4: of fast fashion. Yes, fast fashion, exactly, you know? that's it.
1: So mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit to the sustainability factor of what you do? I know it originated because of the cost of fabric, But is it something that if you were able to get picked up that you would like to still incorporate?
4: Um, That's a really great question because I get that a lot. And it's To be honest, when I start my own brand, I'm not sure that's going to be sustainable in a way to where I can produce it for the masses. I wouldn't have the ability to literally thrift a whole entire collection. That would be really amazing, but it'd be a one-off. And only one person would be able to get it. So I would try to look for, you know, maybe dead stock fabrics, but it would be fabrics that were most likely made from a mill in that sense, but really trying to keep it to where I'm using the bare minimum of what I need, not ordering mass consumption and then throwing it away. I'll try to kind of stick to that, you know, process of what I've been doing.
1: I can hear a little sadness in your voice when you explain that. And if there was a (laughs) magical way to be able to keep doing it, I have no doubt you would.
4: I love thrifting. Like, I think it's just kind of encompassed my life and it's intertwined and thread through there, you know, just like sewing, but to get to a point to where I'd want to be, it's just not feasible. And And I want to be successful and I have to push that boundary and stretch out to a bigger market. You know, I started what I'm doing, not just because of what was the lack of out there for children's clothes, but letting other Black children and families see themselves in a light that we were never really painted in. We were never really in magazines showing high fashion or glamorous looks. It was always that story of poor child or somewhere that you wouldn't want to be. So my narrative and story behind it is showing this powerful young Black girl in a positive light with amazing pieces that tell a story or evoke some sort of emotion when you see these images. And it's so amazing to have people comment and send me messages through Instagram saying how much they love this and they show their daughter, you know, and their daughter has never seen something like it. So it feels really special to, you know, have people see that when that was what I was trying to do in the first place without saying it.
1: That's wonderful. Is there anything about Atlanta that you feel like influences your work? Or can you speak to being an artist living in Atlanta?
4: Living in Atlanta is definitely different. I was actually born and raised in California, but Atlanta just has something about it that's, it's just really reminiscent to the past. The locations speak to what I love to create. They help narrate the story that I'm trying to show versus tell. And it just really brings out an extra creative side that I knew was there. So it just kind of helps mesh and mold it all together within one place.
1: Elisa Bertrand of Jabella Fleur Clothing. You can learn more about the designer and her upcycled clothing creations on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally today, a bit of news at the intersection of art and charity. The athletic footwear brand Saucony is working with hospitalized children around the U.S. to create limited edition, one-of-a-kind sneaker collections. This initiative is part of their Run for Good children's program. Five young patients from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta are pitching in with their designs. Each child will work with a Saucony designer to create sneakers and apparel that are reflective of their personal stories. The limited collection will range from $110 to $200, and 20% of each sale will be donated to the Children's Hospital or towards charities of the children's choosing. Saucony pledges to donate at least $200,000 collectively. Thus far, they've created 17 different sneakers and six pieces of apparel. The first collection from the kids at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta launches today. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Steven Satterfield joins us. His hit Netflix series, High on the Hog, explores how African-American cuisine transformed America. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org citylights City Lights. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzis. Our producer is Summer Evans and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Droves and I encourage you to follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Coming up next Sunday, August 15th, is WABE's Mixtape Live, our very first outdoor music festival, and it features entrance to NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. The event is going on at Sweetwater Brewery from noon till 5 p.m. Once again on Sunday, August 15th, and while there, you'll hear from six different performers and the whole thing is hosted by comedian Mark Kendall. General admission is free, but VIP tickets are also available for purchase. If you're interested in learning more, head over to WABE.org, and there you'll learn more information about the event as well as the COVID safety protocols. We're looking forward to a day of outdoor fun, music, and community, and I really hope we see you there. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Thank you.